This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Bugbear As much as we here at the Word of the Week enjoy disentangling various modern fantasy monster origins in myths, legends, and folklore, we have to admit that sometimes it drives us a little crazy. Problem is that modern fantasy pop culture is usually very definitive. These days, pretty much every game and fantasy story agrees on what an orc is, and what a goblin is, and what an ogre is. They're just part of our fantasy collective unconscious. And that's because we've been distilling these little chunks of folklore for centuries. So something that started off vague and amorphous and fluid with many different shapes and forms gradually becomes pure, solid, and defined. And once that happens, we can start to define firm relationships between them. Of course, the Sasquatch of the American Pacific Northwest is a cousin to the Himalayan Yeti. You can see the process of defining and then relating very clearly in the evolution of the Dungeons and Dragons monster manuals over the last 50 years. Especially when it comes to this episode's namesake, the Bugbear. Back in 1974, when Gary Gygax introduced the Bugbear to his Greyhawk supplement, it was a big hairy monster vaguely related to the Goblin as opposed to the Hobgoblin, which was a large, fearless goblin. And the goblin at the time was just a small humanoid monster. Over time, the relationship between those three creatures, eventually called the Goblinoids, became more and more defined until, in the fourth edition of the game, their natures were spelled out quite clearly. They were all members of the same basic race. They were all goblins. The base goblins were diminutive, cowardly, thieving, scavenging monsters. Hobgoblins were large, advanced, militaristic, and disciplined goblins. And bugbears were feral, carnivorous, bestial goblins. But the bugbear has always begged more than a few questions in our minds. Why is it called a bugbear? It is vaguely bear-like, sure, but there's nothing remotely bug-like about it. The owlbear is part owl, part bear. Why isn't the bugbear part bug? And why is it related to goblins? Sure, Gary used to imagine all sorts of relationships between his monsters, like the Thule, part troll, part hobgoblin, and part ghoul. And we swear we aren't making that one up. And did you know the original Knoll was part gnome and part troll? Now the thing is, bugbear is not a word unique to D&D. In fact, it's a common English word. It means something that irritates you. For example, trying to answer a simple question about a modern fantasy pop culture monster only to discover that the whole question is murky and muddy and amorphous and has to do with at least four other monsters and involves clashing folklore from every corner of the entire continent? That's a particular bugbear of ours. It drives us crazy. Especially because it's hard for us to know where to start. First, let's get this out of the way. The relationship between bugbears and hobgoblins and goblins and all the monster cross monster stuff? That wasn't dreamed up by the designers of Dungeons and Dragons. That's not Gary's doing. A bugbear is a hobgoblin. Sort of. And a hobgoblin is part hob and part goblin. Which means, in order to explain the bugbear, we have to explain a bunch of other creatures. And that's where things get murky. Because there isn't just one thing called a goblin. So we have to explain a lot of creatures. And we're not even sure which creatures to explain. 
The word goblin was first used in the 14th century, and the word appears throughout European folklore, especially in Scandinavia, the British Isles, and France. However, the word appears to be related to an old Latin word that was derived from a Greek word, kobalos, meaning rogue or thief. And if that sounds familiar, you probably remember our very old episode about the kobold. And that just complicates things further, because it appears that goblin and kobold are basically two different names for one thing. And the reason is because the word goblin is actually a very generic catch-all for a whole bunch of supernatural creatures. A goblin is a mischievous supernatural creature, and the word seems to have appeared in Europe as a general descriptor for a huge variety of creatures described in various local superstitions and folklores that had existed since pagan times. Basically, it was an attempt by writers of the time to sweep a bunch of similar magical spirits under one blanket term. Like redcaps, and earl kings, and knockers, and brownies, and imps, and so forth. But there were some features that distinguished the goblin creatures from other types of supernatural beings like fairies and elves and gnomes. Goblins were often malevolent, or at least mischievous. They tended to be greedy, and they were unpleasant, ugly little things. And actually, it seems to be the ugliness that's the most important part. Which brings us around to the hobgoblin, or Robin the Goblin. But you can call him Puck or Puka, or Harvey. That got confusing fast, didn't it? Let us explain. So, in English folklore, there's a type of friendly hearth spirit known as a hob. Basically, he was the sort of helpful little elf that supposedly lived in houses and helped out the residents in return for food. He'd clean houses and mend clothes as long as he left out some milk or cream or honey for him. He'd help kindly shoemakers make shoes. You know the type. But back in those days, the word hob was actually a nickname. It was short for Robin or Robert, because although hobs eventually became a plural term, originally there was one spirit, Robin Goodfellow. And while he was helpful at home, Robin Goodfellow was a terror on the road. See, according to legend, Robin Goodfellow liked to lead travelers astray. Playfully, he was a prankster. Like, he'd use his lantern to draw travelers to him, and then, when they reached the edge of a cliff, he'd suddenly blow out the lantern and leave them to bumble around in the dark and plunge to their deaths. Get it? It's hilarious. Often, though, he just liked to get travelers lost. So there was an old phrase that went, Was Robin Goodfellow with you tonight? And it basically meant, Did you get lost again? Presumably, it was the sort of thing you'd ask that one friend of yours who is always late to everything. Robin Goodfellow got you again, huh? Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Now, this was the equivalent of a Welsh phrase, poke leaden, or led by puck. Well, we say puck, but we should say pook, because that's how it used to be said. And yes, we're talking about puck, the famous fairy from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. But puck appeared to be the Welsh equivalent of Robin Goodfellow. Or rather, Robin Goodfellow, or Hob, is the version of Puck that eventually settled down and went domestic. And meanwhile, just as Robin became Hob and Hob went from a proper noun to a common noun for an entire class of supernatural house spirits, Puck became Puka, and eventually also became a common noun. And eventually he gained a different common noun, Harvey. In 1944, 
American playwright Mary Chase wrote a Broadway play about a friendly man named Elwood, who claims to have an invisible friend named Harvey. A friend he introduces to everyone. And a friend he describes as a six-foot-three-and-one-half-inch humanoid rabbit. And then he's committed to a sanitarium, and hilarity ensues. The play was remarkably successful. Chase received a Pulitzer Prize for it a year later. And in 1950, Universal Pictures produced a film adaptation of the play, starring Jimmy Stewart and Josephine Hull. The film version of Harvey received critical acclaim. Hill won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, and Stewart was nominated for Best Actor. What does this have to do with Puck or Pook? Well, if you've seen the film, then you already know that the Invisible Rabbit was actually described as a shape-shifting English fairy called a Pooka. And that wasn't only the second time Puck or Pooks had appeared in a play. We mentioned that William Shakespeare had used the name Puck for the friendly fairy who leads a young couple through the fairy forest of Oberon. Well, it may have been Shakespeare's doing that mashed Robin Goodfellow and Puck together, because the character is clearly inspired by various Robin Goodfellow tales. He was a very popular folkloric figure with numerous ballads about him. But he's got the name of the more malevolent Welsh shapeshifter spirit, Puck. So, where does Hobgoblin come from? Well, it appears that at some point, people affixed Goblin to the end of Hobbes' name to indicate that although he was friendly and elf-like, he was also ugly and mischievous. See, in addition to being a nickname, the word Hob had also become associated with elves. So Hobgoblin means ugly and mischievous elf, as well as meaning Robin the Goblin. And there you go. And that brings us to the bugbear, or rather the bear, or rather the boggle, aka the bogart or bogan or bogey, the boogie bear. What you have to understand is that the word bug didn't originally mean insect. It meant something fearful or frightening. At least it did in the 14th century. And it also had associations with the devil. In fact, the name Beelzebub may have grown from the same root word as the word for bug. In Welsh, the word boog is also related to the word for ghost. And a boogman was a term for a scarecrow, too a fake man designed to scare crows. The thing is, the word bugbear actually has the same origin as the word bogeyman. And there's a sort of a linguistic mess behind all of this that clouds where the bear part actually came from. The word bugbear first appeared in the 16th century, though the other terms for fearful monsters like bogard and bogey predate it. Some have suggested that the bugbear was a specific incarnation of a bogey that took the form of a monster bear. Others think an actual bear encounter might have inspired the story. Bears were not terribly common in England. Interestingly, though, by the 18th century, the word bug wasn't really used to connote fear anymore, but it still existed, because the name had been applied to a particularly dreadful insect, the beetle. And eventually, it morphed into a generic term for insects. And that's how bug lost its fearful connotations and gained a meaning that is closer to irritation. If you've ever wondered why Oogie Boogie, the boogeyman from Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, directed by Henry Selleck and not Tim Burton, thank you very much. If you've ever wondered why Mr. Oogie Boogie was depicted as a stitched together man shape filled with bugs who terrorized people, well, it's just a mashup of all the various origins of the name Boogeyman. 
Fear, Bugs, and Scarecrows. Nice job, Burton and Selleck. Now, just like goblins, there are all sorts of myths and legends about various bogey monsters. And some folklore fans like to argue the difference between bogards and bogies and boogabears and boogeymen. We're not going to bother. Because they're all basically fearful spirits that exist in dark, frightful places. They represent primal fear. Especially to kids, whom they routinely kidnap. Whether it was a bogard lurking in the closet ready to pounce on a child who didn't quiet down and go to sleep or a bugbear waiting in the woods to devour a child who wandered too far from home after dark. They were most common in stories that were meant to frighten children into obedience. Parenting at its finest. Which isn't to say there haven't been any real bogeymen in the world. There have been. For example, there was Hamilton Howard Fish also known as Albert Fish, dubbed the Boogeyman by newspapers at the time. We have to warn you, this story is not a pleasant story, because Albert Fish earned his nickname by gruesomely murdering children and cannibalizing them. He was one of the most vicious murderers in American history. Born in 1870 in Washington, D.C. to a family with a long history of mental illness, Fish was diagnosed early with paranoid schizophrenia, which is a condition we have discussed before. Basically, it is typified by delusions, disordered thinking, and abnormal interpretations of reality. It requires lifelong treatment, and it's a chronic condition. But Fish never received any help for his condition. When he was five years old, his father died in a boating accident, and his mother abandoned him at an orphanage soon thereafter. He was abused in the orphanage for many years before his guilt-stricken mother came to rescue him, having seen the error of her ways. But Fish was already damaged beyond help. After he and his mother moved to New York City, he married and fathered six children. But after his wife ran off with another man, the children reported their father had strange habits. He was obsessed with pain. He would eat raw meat. He collected books about cannibalism. It was later discovered that during this time, he had already begun kidnapping and murdering children off the streets. Over the next 30 years, between 1900 and 1930, he kidnapped, murdered, and cannibalized countless children in New York and in other states. During this time, he was arrested once. But not for murder. He was caught committing a minor theft. And police had no idea the affable, mild-mannered man they'd captured was responsible for numerous gruesome crimes. He was released soon thereafter, and his crimes continued. In 1928, he kidnapped a 10-year-old named Grace Budd. Investigators stayed on the case for six years without getting any closer to the unknown killer. Then, in 1934, Budd's mother received a letter detailing the crimes in sadistic detail. It was from Fish himself, 
and the investigators were able to trace the letter back to Fish's residence. Once captured, he immediately began confessing to his various crimes. And in January of 1936, this real-life boogeyman was justly executed for his grisly crimes. It's easy to see why a fearful monster such as Albert Fish, would be nicknamed after a fearful monster that lurks in the night and threatens children. It ties right into the nature of the legendary figure. And Fish was associated with the Boogeyman for another reason. As terrifying as the Boogeyman was, he was also legendarily elusive and difficult to catch. If you did manage to get close to him, he'd vanish into thin air. And that elusiveness gets us to a very famous song by way of a famous movie, by way of a sports mascot, by way of a different song. And it also explains why you can shoot a bogey in golf. Like the bugbear and goblins, the sport of golf actually has a lot of murky stories about where it came from. We accept that it was originally invented in Scotland in the Middle Ages and became popular in the United Kingdom and the United States in the late 1800s. That's about all we know for sure. Everything else is just a story. Oh, we also know that bit about golf being an acronym for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. It's a big internet lie. The word golf derives from an old word for a cudgel or club. The important thing to know for this story is that originally golf wasn't scored at all. You just tried to hit the ball into the hole. But in the late 1800s, as the sport was becoming popular, British golfers decided to figure out a way to keep score. So they started rating holes based on how many strokes it should take to complete the hole. And they called that the ground score. And it was based on what a skilled amateur should be able to do as long as they didn't make any major mistakes. Meanwhile, there was this popular British dance hall song called Here Comes the Bogeyman. In it, the elusive shadowy figure tauntingly sings, I'm the bogeyman, catch me if you can. And so... The story goes that a golfer named Charles Wellman was playing golf one day in Great Yarmouth in England and he had trouble with a particular hole. He exclaimed that the ground score on that hole was a regular bogeyman. That is, chase it though he did, he couldn't quite catch it. And the term kind of stuck. Chasing the ground score became known as chasing a bogey. And then, some golfers and courses decided to personify the whole thing by inventing a mascot of sorts. Colonel Bogey. Within a decade or so, golfers were out on the course trying to beat Colonel Bogey. Meanwhile, the character was mentioned in newspapers, and a comic character started to appear on golf products and in advertising. And then, in 1914... British Army Bandmaster and avid golfer Lieutenant Frederick Joseph Ricketts, under the pen name Kenneth J. Alford, composed a song honoring the golf mascot, the Colonel Bogey March. And that's where the history of that song gets elusive and murky, because most people are familiar with the song as the River Kwai March, because it was used in the classic 1957 film The Bridge on the River Kwai. The less cultured film aficionados might call it the Dink Dink song from Spaceballs. The thing is, though, Malcolm Arnold, who composed the score from the bridge on the River Kwai, didn't use the Colonel Bogey March in full in the film. Instead, he used parts of it and added his own countermarch. 
that the miscrediting helped make Colonel Bogey popular in America, especially when the bridge on the River Kwai won numerous accolades in America and Britain and is still regarded as one of the best war movies ever made. We should mention that today in golf, a bogey refers to a score of one over par, or as it used to refer to scoring the ground score. And that's because there's a difference between par and the ground score. When the ground score was introduced, it was the number of strokes a talented amateur player should be able to accomplish. When the scoring system was improved later and a par was set, the par was the number of strokes an expert player should need to complete a hole. In fact, for a time, many golf courses published both the par and the ground score for each hole before par completely supplanted the ground score. Now, the Colonel Bogey March became popular in America as a result of the bridge on the River Kwai, but it was already pretty well known in the United Kingdom at the time. In fact, it had been a popular song in the military for many years, especially during World War II. And thus, British Air Force pilots during World War II started using the word for a fearful and elusive figure to describe an unidentified aircraft they had made contact with. That is to say, they had perceived visually or spotted on one of the relatively new radio detection and ranging devices. Or radar devices. That's right, did you know radar is an acronym? But we have to admit, we've been led astray at this point. All we were doing was trying to track down the elusive origin of the bugbear, why it was called that, and what it had to do with goblins. And though we now know why it's got the bug part of its name, no one seems to know why it's a bear. And at least we know it was originally considered a hobgoblin. And then we went off chasing bogeys through the dark of linguistic history. I guess Robin Goodfellow was with us for this episode. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.